Hey everyone, welcome to the ninth episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Prakash Armitage. Prakash was the MVP of an NCAA championship college team in 2002, was the number one Indian tennis player, and reached a career-high ATP ranking of 119 in the world. He currently works for the Tennis Channel, where you can see him on TC Live, on-site at the Masters 1000s, and doing color commentary for both ATP and WTA matches. On today's episode, we discuss what it was like to follow in his dad's footsteps and play Davis Cup for India, how he uses his code to get the best out of himself every day, and why he wears shirts with really, really short sleeves. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Prakash, welcome to the pod. Stokes, lovely to see you, and I'm glad we could finally schedule it. Yes, always, always a pleasure to see, you know, I got Master P, Prakash Worldwide. That's how I know the podcast is gaining momentum, you taking time out of your day. <laughs> um, so most people know you from Tennis Channel. You're on TV right now, you're everywhere, you're on Instagram, and so I think that's how a lot of people listening know you, but I want to start you know, the interview kind of talking about your playing career. Uh, you were successful at every level. You know, you were the Kalamazoo Boys 18s champion, which for those listening who don't know, that's the tournament that gets you a wild card into the main draw of the U.S. Open. And you actually, you beat me in the quarters there. So my first question I, is... I remember the match very clearly, actually. Yes. So my first question is, did that win over a player of my extreme caliber, did you use that as a springboard to your future success? I will say that Prakash Worldwide would not exist if I did not win that match. <laughs> listen, I, the thing that the, uh, listen, I'm just messing. The thing that ex- that stands out the most is, you know, you're one of those names from juniors. Those relationships that have have lasted. It's a it's a beautiful fraternity that we live in, and it's weird those matches that stand out for you. And we talked about this just before we got on air. That was one of them. You know, I'll never, it's so funny. You just don't remember any of the matches. Sometimes you've played a guy four times and you're like, did I ever even play this guy? But I, I think that it was actually, I think the match was 6-1, 6-7, 6-1. How do you remember that? That's, that's exactly correct. I, I have no idea. Like, actually, it, it had never crossed my mind over, what, 25, 30 years until I just saw your face. It's very weird, but certain things, you know, I mean, countless times that you and Rajiv have just mauled us in in doubles, but they were, God, those were the you know great times. You know, I, I've gone through a bit of a interesting phase right now where you know I'm I'm in a great place, you know, happy and so forth. And I realized so much of it is going back to the way I was as a kid, as a teenager. You know, you think about a lot of these times, and it's a it's just a beautiful time period. So I, I want to kind of talk about two experiences that you have a very unique perspective on that a lot of players out there will never experience. And the first one was you were the MVP of a national championship collegiate team when you were at University of Southern California. And a lot of us, like myself, played college tennis. I coached it, but I don't know what it was like to be in a championship match. And a lot of people out there don't know what it's like to just be in any college dual match. So can you kind of explain what that experience was like and how it differed from some of those junior or professional matches that you played? 100%. Um, First of all, anyone listening out there, I cannot say enough good things about college tennis. College tennis is just one of the greatest building blocks, not just for you as an individual, but for you as a tennis player. 
there are so many things you learn and pick up that are going to be useful later in life. So I just want to make that very clear. Um, you know, it's the weirdest thing, man. I took it, uh, uh, you know, I had gotten some scholarship offers, you know, around the country. And for me, I just, I want to go to Stanford or USC. And I took a trip to both places. And I actually like a lot of things about Stanford better, but I, I wanted to stay close to dad because I thought that would be best for my tennis. He used to come during my free periods, train with me before I trained with the team. And I remember that year, it was the first year Dick Leach ever had uh, challenge matches. He, he never did it before. He would just use seniority, whatever. So, but he thought we were a really deep team. So I think that was a sign of, oh, wow, you know what? Maybe we can put some stuff together here. And, uh, you know, we figured out our lineup. I, I had actually, I got, went undefeated in the challenge matches, but he stuck to seniority on the first couple. You know, so we had uh, Andrew Park, Ryan Moore, myself, uh, Daniel Langre, Ruben Torres, uh, Tyke Sullivan played, played a lot. And we got, we didn't have a great season. You know, I think we lost to UCLA for love once. It wasn't great. And then, uh, you know, there was a piece of our team which, you know, the energy wasn't quite great. And uh, long story, but he ended up getting thrown off the team a week before NCAAs. And I think that actually really helped us. Even though he was a really good tennis player, we went there. We were seated 11, okay? I mean, we were the lowest-ranked team to ever win it. And we had a brutal draw. And we, I think we beat Baylor first round, who you know had a stack of unbelievable Germans on the team. I think Benedict Dorsch was on the team. Benny Becker was on the team. And then we took out Philip Stolt. Uh, I took out Philip Stolt when we played Illinois. And I remember quarters, semis, and finals, I ended up winning the clinching match. And in the semis, I remember I was playing Adam Carey. Adam Carey had like a 16-match winning streak. And I remember the coach of Tennessee, Michael Flanka, just yelling, keep him away from the net, keep him away from the net, because I was just bum-rushing the whole time. All the matches had stopped. Everyone was watching. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm just the biggest Muhammad Ali fan you can get. And the whole team was, you know, yelling, uh, you know, Prakash Bumaye, Prakash Bumaye, because that's, that's, they knew that's what, you know, just all I wanted to hear. And I remember I was crazy. I won the final point, took off my shirt, flexed for the crowd, you know, with, with absolutely no muscles. And, and same thing, same thing in the finals. It was, I didn't really realize how special it was until the following year. You know, at that point, I'll be very honest. I was just, oh, great. We get to play more matches. You know, I got some futures coming up. I get more matches under my belt. That was really where I was at. And in a way it was good because I was just focused on the tennis and what to do. And, I will say the atmosphere was just electric, but only when I went back next year, I, I, I was watching in Georgia that year it was a college station. And I thought to myself, wow, I mean, teams and players and coaches might go 10, 20 years or, or never win a championship. That's when I really had the perspective and realized how fortunate and fairy tale we were. You know, sometimes when you know a little bit less, it kind of works out to your benefit in sport. And we've seen that on the tour too. You see some of these guys who, they just break out and then all of a sudden they have this amazing Grand Slam title run. It's tougher when you know a lot more. The other amazing experience that you you got to take part of several times was you were the number one player for India. And so you got to compete in another amazing team comp competition, which is Davis Cup. And so a player like me who got to play in high level college, I know what that dual match and what the energy feels like. But can you explain how a Davis Cup is compared to even a high level collegiate match? Um, I think it's different in general. And then in India, it's like, it's something else, you know, cricket is a religion in India, right? So let's take cricket out of the picture for a minute. But after that, 
tennis really was the biggest sport for for such a long time. So you're looking at yourself, uh, and then let's let's magnify by the fact that I was Vijay's son, and Vijay is, you know, he's he's I won't even call him a sports figure in India. He's really a historic figure. You know what he's been able to do and sort of bring India onto the world stage when he was playing and all the all the political accolades he's had as well. So there were a lot of eyeballs on me from the start. I will say, you know, I probably wasn't mature enough to handle everything in the optimal way. You know, look, you're you're a young kid and you're trying to figure out your way as it is. And you know, when you're winning, it's India's Prakash on the front page of the paper. When you're losing, it's American-born arbitrage, you know, loses, blah, blah, blah. So you've got to try to process all that stuff because I grew up just hearing these stories of the great love of the Indian crowd and being able to lift them on your back when you have these great wins and so forth from dad. So it was a little bit of a shell shock kind of adjusting to that. But then I settled in and, listen, I had some experiences which were like out-of-body experiences. I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll tell you one quick story. 1985, VJ is leading India against Sweden. Willander, Edberg, you know, just just unbelievable team. And they're playing in Bangalore. And uh, I'm, I'm two years old, walking on the court and sweeping the tennis ball on the court. And dad's like rolling the tennis ball to me. And in the papers, there was a picture of me doing that with dad. And the caption under was, will Prakash ever wield a racket for India in Davis Cup? 20 years, almost to the day, I'm leading India as their number one against Sweden, uh, Johansson, Bjorkman, and Willander was the captain. So they had a picture of me like kind of fixing my strings, dad kind of coaching me on that same center court. And the cap- and they ran both pictures side by side in the paper. And that just made me feel like a part of history, a part of something that was a little bit bigger than sport. And those kind of moments, which, which happened a few times in Davis Cup, are probably what I cherish the most. That's amazing. So I was going to ask you, you know, your dad, like you said, I've heard you compare him to like a Kobe or a Michael. I mean, when you're in India, he's a major, major celebrity. And then you have the pressure of being the top ranked Indian player. So what were some of the things that you did? You said maybe you weren't mature enough to handle it. But what did you work on that you were able to center yourself and stay in the present so that you could perform at a level that you were happy with? You know, John, I'll be really honest with you. I, I don't think I, I really did that. You know, I was able to, you know, have some great successes and so forth. But I think had I sort of been in a mind space where I am now, and look, we all think that, right? I wish we were as mature as we are now back then. But I'll say, and I'll be very honest on the good and bad. I think on the bad side, I probably let, you know, outside opinion and and the thoughts of others probably influence me a little too much and influence a bit of my decision making. And, you know, that caused a bit of uh, contradiction within me, like you're being pulled in two different directions. But I, I, the, some of the stuff that I did really well was, you know, I think I'm best when I'm grounded. And being in India so much, I based myself out of India quite a bit because of Davis Cup. You're going there so often. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. You know, my grandparents were in Chennai. They were, uh, oh God, they were so special. Um, they, uh, you know, recently, we, we lost them a few years back. You know, they sort of reminded me of, of my roots and where I came from. And I maintained a very, very close relationship with them, you know, all the way through my life, which I'm so fortunate for. And being close with them, dad, you know, writing these kind of things down, watching the kind of movies that kept me in that mindset. That's probably what allowed me to play my best in that time. 
So I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, most people know you from TV now. And so you've made the transition from an amazing player and now you're commentating, doing interviews. You're doing a little bit of everything, to be honest. And I kind of want to know, you know, you have a really good feel for the game as an elite player, but what have you picked up about the game of tennis that you've seen through the eyes of a color commentator? Um, I'm, I'm getting to watch a lot more tennis than I ever did. You know, a lot of times as a player, you're, you're just studying what pertains to you. So sometimes you're watching players that you want to emulate and, oh, well, how is he doing this? You know, how can I do that a bit more? So you're watching a lot of that. You know, it's funny, YouTube came up sort of midway through my career. You know, before that, we didn't have any of that. So now it, what I'm doing now has allowed me to watch a whole array of players, everyone. I did commentary last week uh, for the WTA in Lyon and the WTA in Monterey. So I was able to watch a ton of players who aren't necessarily at the top, top of the game because a lot of players were getting ready for Indian Wells. So these players were a little lower ranked. And you really get to see the differences in what separates a player who's 200, 150, 100, 150, and top 10. And I think without that macro look, it, it, you, know, you can't understand the game as well. It's so funny. <laughs> Listen, this is going to sound terrible. I'll say it. When I was in juniors with you, I'm like, I thought matches were won on winners. I mean, I really thought matches were won. So I'm like, I'm out there trying to hit great shots. Oh, today was a great day. I hit so many great shots, which is literally the worst thinking you can possibly have. You know, watching that compared to when you watch some of the top players, it's, it's literally unforced errors. And errors and being able to limit that on your bad days, how, how can you get over the hump on bad days? problem solving, all of these things. I think uh, watching this much tennis has, has really helped mature my mind even further. And let me just add also what I've learned from this role. I'm so fortunate because Tennis Channel is like the most magical family out there. I mean, I, I get to work alongside, I, like I got to pinch myself against people who I just, you know, looked up to in awe. Jim Courier, uh, I hold in the highest regard of anything. You know, you know me, I'm a work ethic guy. And, and there was no one better than Jim at that. So, you know, I'll be with him in the green room, just, you know, asking him questions, you know, all day long. And not just to learn, but one, I'm a geek. So I want to hear stories from the 90s, you know, the, the era that I grew up on. And two, you can apply that to yourself. Like, how, how can you make yourself better? So I guess that's another thing that I learned a ton. Now, we have some brilliant tennis minds there, you know, Paul Anacone, Martina, Lindsay, so many. So you're, I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn over there. So maybe then just listening to you, it'd be good for a lot of players out there to watch more tennis because as a, as a learning tool, you know, I, a lot of players come off the court and they say, well, I won, but it's just because the other player missed. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, so you and every other player who's ever won a match, like that's, that's kind of what happens. Like, guess what? Rafa won the match and Corda made X amount of errors. I can promise you Rafa didn't hit more than 20 or 25 winners, but they think you see the highlights on Instagram, you see the highlights on Tennis Channel, and you, you think that Rafa is just hitting aces and forehand winners for three sets, and he's not, you know? And so, yeah, maybe, maybe that's the key to educating, you know, the tennis community out there. Well, it's not just watching. If I were them, I would listen. Really pay attention. Almost pick your favorite analysts out there, you know? Go listen to Paul Anacone. Go listen to Jim Courier and just, like, keep listening. It's, it's frightening how much you learn. And I think that's a great, great tip for, for players. And also, if you're a young player, go watch Jensen Brooksby. Watch every single match he's ever played. 
You got Stefanos Tsitsipas coming off his loss to Jensen Brooksby. You should have seen his press conference. He didn't really have one constructive thing to say. I think he didn't even know what happened out there. It's a beautiful thing watching him just run circles around people's brains, man. It's unbelievable. So, you know, a lot of times I'm sitting there and I'm watching a match at night and someone will miss a shot and I'll make a comment. And five seconds later, the commentator will say it, right? And I look at my wife and I go, (laughs) I go, hey, I, I should be on TV. Like, are you kidding me? But I can tell you from hosting the podcast, like, I can edit this after I'm not even on TV and I still am so bad at it and I'm making mistakes. So when you started going on TV and it was your first time on television, what were some of the hurdles that you had to overcome and some of the challenges that you faced commentating on live TV? That's got to be extremely difficult. Um, You know, it's funny. I feel more comfortable on live than I do with tape stuff. I make a lot more mistakes uh, on, on tape when we're recording something. I'm like, Oh, sorry guys, let's do it again. (laughs) It's, well, just to give you a little background, so when I left tennis, I mean, growing up, it was always, you know, film and tennis, film and tennis. So I, uh, I, I sunk into the acting side, you know, the same way I, I sunk into my tennis training. And I think so much of that training on the acting side and the improv side has, has really helped me in, in what I'm doing with, with tennis. And a lot of it, I think, just comes down to living in the moment. I think the best commentators out there, the ones that I admire, not just even in tennis. I, some of my favorites are in basketball. Some of my favorites are in other sports. And they're all very conversational, you know? It, it really should be like, like you and I talking to each other. And the more comfortable you get, sure, the ums, the you knows, the, the stalling ends up becoming less and less. You know, even if I listened to myself from five years ago, I, I had, you know, more bad habits. You try to clean them up. You constantly try to work on them. But it, it, it's, I think it should just be natural. And the, the, the biggest thing is, there is one John Stokey in the world, you know, there is one Prakash Amitraj in the world. And the more you can focus on literally just being you as an unadulterated as possible in any walk of life, I think that's where you find your success. So this is actually an Instagram question, but it, it ties in perfectly uh, to what we're talking about now. But is this from your, your ask, ask John uh, and someone's firing? It this, this, this is the ask Stokey. I'm, I'm giving you a sneak peek. We'll have some later. And, and like I said, some Great. of them are actually pretty funny. But th- this actually ties into what we're talking about. The the Instagram follower wanted to know, you know, when you're commentating, like you said, you have all these relationships that you've built up from playing days. And as a commentator, you know, the first example that came to my mind is your sister-in-law is Allison Risk, right? So do you find it hard to commentate on friends or in that case, family and have an unbiased, objective opinion about what's going on? Is that a challenge for you? Uh, no, uh, uh, because I've gotten to a point where, um, and if you'll notice, I, you know, I, I know a lot of these people. So it, even in interviews, you know, you gotta, uh, it, it's, it, it can be challenging, but the way I like to do it is number one, I just, I like to just keep it real. You know, I, I just keep it 100. And number two, I'm, I'm of the ilk that I've, you know, I may not have done it at the highest, highest, highest level on the ATP tour. I know what it is to walk in their shoes. And that's probably kept at the forefront of everything I say and anything I ask. You know, there's just a personal opinion. I despise when commentators use the word journeyman. I, I don't care where you're ranked. If you're somewhere on TV, you've excelled to a point where you are exceptional at what you do. So there is a way to be able to go after things where you're talking about something they didn't do right without neglecting to respect the effort, you know? 
And I think as long as, you know, I keep those lines, I feel comfortable. I have peace of mind. And I think that's, that's what's most important. So for those that follow you on Instagram, and I'm one of those people, it's uh, pretty much eight stories a day of you getting absolutely shredded in the gym with the occasional tennis channel, which by the way, I'm not complaining about. Um, <laughs> but so I want to actually ask you about that because that's something new, right? Like when we grew up playing and maybe in your early pro days, you were not chiseled out of granite. You were a little <laughs> bit softer and looked a little bit more like a tennis player. I was made of chicken curry back then. <laughs> <laughs> but but working out that hard and, and being on a strict diet takes a ton of discipline. Did you always have that discipline in you or is that something that kind of popped up later in life for a specific reason? No, I, I, I always had that in me. I think I, I probably channel it better now, but hard work has always been something that I, I loved. You know, when I was a kid, I remember saying, you know, my, my favorite feeling in the world is going to bed at night knowing I couldn't have given any more to that day. So that's that's 100% always been there in me. I'm just more sort of undeterred now because it's all tied to a purpose. You know, the 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 training that I do now, I'll just kind of, you know, summarize it in, in three different three different ways. One, when you leave the tennis tour, you know, training six, seven, eight hours a day, it's, it's part of who you are. And I, I just, I needed something to fill that fill that hole and look I, I could never lift weights when i was really playing you had to maintain a certain type of physique and there are lots of aspirations i have on the film side of things to you know change the perspective of how you know indians of my background are seen in film tv and so forth and um you know so that's a big part of it also and overall it's really my meditation you know i mean if you think about it bodybuilding is you know you go and you lift you know a five pound dumbbell and you can do it six times all of a sudden, you know, you can't do it the sixth. You can't do it the seventh, right? A week later, you can do it the seventh. Two weeks later, you can do it an eighth time. All of a sudden, you physically taught yourself that something your body and mind told you was impossible is all of a sudden possible. And I think training that constantly into you, so it's literally a part of your cerebral makeup, I think is, 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 a, is a, it's a beautiful thing for life. And that's like probably the main reason why I do it. So you talking about that mentality, a lot of times you mention on Instagram your code. Can you explain when you ask what's your code, can you explain what your code is and what that means to you? Love the question, John. Love the question. First, first, just for everyone out there, I believe, you know, a code is your, it, it's these large set of principles and beliefs, right? And let's think about it up here, like on a macro level and you know, when they're so strong and you believe in them so emphatically, they trickle down and influence every single little decision you make on a daily basis. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the greats, the, the people that inspire me, and I've, I've studied them all. And when their code is so strong, it's, it's amazing the miracles that they can do. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to um, spend a lot of time and become close with uh, Venus, Serena and their whole family. And I spent, I spent a lot of time with her dad who influenced me greatly. And, you know, when you realize how, you know, they function at, at sort of a core level and what's like most important to them, I'm like, wow, that's what they have inside them when it's six all in the third or a difficult moment in life or, or, or you know, whatever. Oh, no wonder they're able to do the impossible, you know, to make a really super, a super simple analogy. If I told you, hey, Stokes, jump off that second floor building, you're going to laugh at me. There's no way you're going to do it. But if all of a sudden 
the building was on fire and your kid was on that second floor and you were with your kid, you'd find a way to carry him and jump off that building, you know? So uh, it, it comes down to those overarching beliefs, like what is so important to you? And if those things are kind of etched in stone, and look, we develop it over, over the course of time. I think that's what makes our decisions easy. It's easy to walk on hot coals. It's easy to put yourself through this work. It's easy to get up at 3.30 in the morning, you know? So I think that over, overarching, that's, that's sort of what, you know, the whole what's your code principle is. Do you mind sharing one of those core principles that you have for yourself? 100%. One of them is a, a parable from the Bible. It's the parable of the talents. And, you know, I'll just, I'll just summarize it. But, you know, God gives uh, three men three talent, uh, a different amount of talents, right? One has uh, 10, one has five, one has three. And one goes in, uh, the one with five squanders his talents. The one with 10, I could be just mixing it up. The one with 10 keeps it safely, doesn't do anything with it. When God comes back, he hands it back to him. But the one with three, he goes out and he multiplies his talents. So I believe that uh, some people might be religious, some might be not. But if you are religious, obviously, I believe it comes from God. I'm, I'm, I'm a religious man, uh, born and raised Catholic. But if not, you were born with certain unique traits and attributes. And I think part of that is really giving everything you can to those special qualities. And in, in, in my aspect, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a thank you to God. You know, he, he, he gave me certain things that, that I feel great about, that I feel like I do well, that I feel helps others, inspires others, what those may be. So I, I, it's, almost, it's a thank you to him for me to fulfill it to the highest possible level. You know, one of those uh, is ever since I was a kid, it's just been inspiration, right? Like in any way, just to be, just to be connected to it. I don't care if I was being given it. I don't care if I'm giving it. I just have to be attached to it. Like I, I, that's like one of my core principles, you know, which which then comes down to contribution and being able to, you know, help give to others. And that's that's sort of, you know, a couple of the things that, that comprise it. There's there's others in there, but that that moves me on a daily basis. Maybe uh, may, maybe you should uh, multiply your talents and become a motivational speaker because I'm feeling it on this side. <laughs> <laughs> Stucky. I love that, man. I love that. I, I will say, though, one thing that has been really fortunate for me, uh, when Peter Smith was coaching USC, he brought me back constantly to speak to the, to the athletes there. So I would, I would go and you know, talk to them quite a bit and I'd stay in touch with them. So I still, I still mentor a, a, few of the kid, a few of the guys there to this day. And it, I tell them, they're like, oh, thank you so much. I said, I'm like, bro, you're giving me just as much as I'm giving you. Because just to be connected to that energy where another human like, wants to bring out their best self, it's like it's everything, man. I love that. That's awesome. Um, all right. So as promised, here are your Instagram questions. You only got uh you only got one or two serious ones and you got a lot of kind of funny ones. Uh so it's a nice <laughs> it, 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 it's a nice hey, little comedy is my thing. Let's do it. Yeah, it's a nice little mix from what we so I'll start with your serious one, but th this one comes up quite a bit, but they want to know uh from your perspective, what's the one or two things that you would tell the recreational, the three five, the four oh player, one or two tips to be a better tennis player? Don't worry about looking good. That's number one, because I think that holds you back. Um, I definitely had a lot of that when I was when I was young. You know, the old uh, uh, Wesley Snipes in White Man Can't Jump versus the Woody Harrelson. You know, don't 
don't worry about looking good. You know, focus on on what you have to do, and don't let it be about winning. You know, that's probably number two because I know, you know, you get out there and you play your club matches or whatever it is. But if you can somehow make it be about improvement, and it doesn't have to take over your life, it can still be a hobby. But if you're just trying to incrementally get better each time you get out there, uh, you learn something, you try to implement it. For me, I've always found the most fun in getting better at something. Like I've become obsessed with golf, right? I love it. I've been so busy, I haven't been able to play lately, but I have golf on all the time. I'm listening to the commentators there. Uh, I love Nick Faldo and all these guys, just so I can, I, can, I can learn a bit more. And I just, I love the game. And for me, it's just about getting better. That's what's fun. So I would say, don't worry about looking good. And the focus on improvement are probably the two big things. So you're saying you can look like Jensen Brooksby? and still be a very good tennis player, even if it doesn't look so pretty? Uh, first, first of all, shots fired. When Jensen brooks that, he might kick you, you know what? But uh, no, you know what? He's a great example because he doesn't care. You know, he really doesn't care. He's out there to do what he has to do. In fact, he hopes people think he looks weird because then he gets in the other guy's head like, oh my God, how can I lose to this guy? He looks like that. Boom, point for Jensen, you know? And that's a very mature attitude that someone his age should not be having, and that's why he's so special. I'm so glad you said that because, as you know, you're talking to someone. So I I heard this was later in life, but I heard that my nickname in juniors was Public Parks because my strokes looked really, really bad. And I used to tell myself. I I, I, I never heard that and I never called you that. My goodness, that's savage. It's savage. But, you know, I used to think about it. I was like, well, you know what? I'm a pretty good player. And if my strokes looked beautiful, players would probably respect me a lot more. But I thought it worked to my advantage exactly for the reason you just said with Jensen. When I would hit a shot, you know, when we came on off air, the first thing you did before you said hello was imitate my backhand, which is hilarious, by the way. But my backhand, (laughs) my backhand was my best shot. It was easily my best shot. So every time it went in, you were probably with Steven Armitage, your cousin, going back there going, how in the hell is this guy making these backhands? And it probably frustrated you more. (laughs) <laughs> than if it was a beautiful shot. So that's something out there. You know, don't worry how you look. A lot of times it actually works to your benefit. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So here are your uh, comedic ones. Uh, and I did not ask any of these. Always for the record. These actually <laughs> these actually came from other people. But um, the, fir- the first one is we talked about your workout and, and how intense you are and disciplined you are. And, and you are a monster. Uh, but you do wear a lot of clothes with very short sleeves. And this Instagram... <laughs> This Instagram follower wanted to know if you shop a lot at the Baby Gap. <laughs> you know what? I, I've gotten a lot of grief for my, uh, for my small shirts. And you know what? I actually have two different kind of wardrobes because in the, in the bodybuilding world, depending on what kind of role you're getting ready for or a shoot, you're generally either bulking or cutting. You know, you're gaining weight or you're losing weight. So you come and look at my closet, you'll find some that are, are fit for like a 200-pound Prakash and some that are fit for a 165-pound Prakash. And you know what? Some of those shirts are small, Stokes. All right? You know, what are you going to do? You got you to fit the body right. Hey, I, I'm not complaining. I don't know that anyone is. They were just, <laughs> they were just observing. Um, what, what is your favorite workout? N- nothing like a, like a great lift, you know? I mean, I, everyone asks me, why don't you run? I'm like, I ran for 30 years. Last thing I want to do is run again, you know? I mean, all we did as tennis players was run. So I love lifting. You know, I do cardio because obviously heart health and I love to sweat. But, you know, uh, getting like a great pump, there's, it, it's, it's, a, 
it, it's a beautiful feeling. You know, you get all the blood into your muscles. There's a certain mind muscle connection. It's really an art when you kind of keep keep elevating yourself in it. That's probably when I'm in my best zone. And let me just take it to one other level because you asked what my favorite workout is. When you're able to do it and you kind of get into that zone where you really start envisioning the things you're going after in your life. You know, you've seen me on Instagram talk about it like, oh, great manifest session today. That's really what I feel my gym time is. I try not to talk to anyone. I listen to the right things to put me in that mindset, envision my future. So it's it's really more than just lifting, but those are my, my real favorite workouts when I'm like super connected with my spirit. Uh, and this is the last question here. And this person obviously knows both of us, but uh, they want to know if you need my help with building your calf muscles. You know, listen, man, as it is, calf muscles are tough to build up. Now, I'm Indian, so you know we were cursed with the calf muscles. I mean, you've seen Bopes, you've seen Rajiv. It's not pretty. You, on the other hand, they took all the calves. They should have gone to Indian, and they stuck them in, in your legs. Now, I know you don't work your calves that hard. You were just born with that. Tell me. That, that's genetic, right? Uh, I have joked that I walk around in high heels all night, but it's actually... <laughs> It, it It is actually, if you saw my dad and you saw my grandpa, you would know that I have done zero work on my calves. But I'm happy to help. You know, I'm here for you. I'm here for you if you need me. That's all I'm saying. Listen, I might hit you up. I really might. I really might. All right. So you've been gracious with your time. You know, moving forward, you know, you talked about movies and everything. You know, where, where are we going to find you next? You know, we see you on Tennis Channel Live. We see you on Tennis Channel. But is there anything else we can look out for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we're, we're, we're only growing on Tennis Channel. Um, Tennis Channel is just, you know, uh, it's in such a great spot right now because they keep expanding. They just signed a deal with Samsung. So T2 is now available on Samsung Plus. Um, they're expanding. They're in India. They're in different countries worldwide. So Tennis Channel is just going to keep growing. Um, I'm, I'm looking at doing a lot of different content with them as well, telling a lot of stories. Uh, we just finished one on the inspirational side of things. It might actually be debuting right now on PC Live or um, sometime this week it's coming out. Uh, keep your eye out for that one. That's a that's a really cool inspirational story. And a lot more storytelling. You know, I love doing that. I love bringing my passion and love for the game and, you know, the warriors that it has. The game has given me so much. So in a way, I'm so blessed to be able to, you know, give my love back to the game. So I think that's just going to keep expanding on the tennis side of things, on the film side of things. Uh, we got some great things in the pipeline from our company, Sterling Road Films, me and Pops. Um, we have about five pictures uh, on the slate for, for development right now, um, including telling his story, which is really, really important to me. Something that uh, you know I want to leave behind for future generations to be inspired by Pops the way I have and so many have. And, uh, and also the, the, the acting um, has a bunch of great things in the works, uh, hopefully to be shooting next year, which... Uh, I will certainly announce when I can, but um, it's it's going to be a beautiful thing. And one of the projects, the tennis world, going to be super excited about. Ooh, love that teaser. Um, all right. Hey, Prakash, it was great catching up, man. Hopefully we can do it again and not wait quite as long. But, um, you know, appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories. And it, it was a blast, man. 100%, man. And look, I'm on the road at all these, you know, 1000s coming up, uh, all these different places. So, Listen, just just keep hitting me up. You know, maybe we do one of these where I'm on the road somewhere. You know, I'll give you some stories from the 1000s or the road. It'd be it'd be great. But listen, I would love to see you in person, man. It's been like way too long. Of course, man. And uh, we'll be in touch about the calf workouts. Okay. Holler at your boy, please. <laughs> I can't keep wearing these pants all day. I got to wear some shorts in the gym at some point. All right. I'll see you, man. Be good. Thanks, Doug.
All right, I want to thank Prakash for joining us today. Uh, he has about as much charisma as he does muscles, which is saying something. He had a lot of great stories about his playing days and, and what it was like for him growing up. But my favorite topic that he shared with us today was about his code and how he uses that to maximize his improvement every single day. Each one of us might have different principles or beliefs, but whether you're a player, a coach, or a tennis parent, we can all improve and try to get that 1% better every single day. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.